0: Church, I am so glad to see you. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, I've been sick for, I think, two and a half weeks, and it's my first Sunday I've been here, I think, in three weeks. Uh, I sure have missed you, and I'm glad to be back. June hasn't been a stellar month for me. However, it has been a fantastic month for Golden Corner Church. We've had some great things that have happened. Uh, some of our men partnered with a mission. A mission team called Carpenters for Christ, and they dedicated most of their week, some of them all of their week, to helping a sister church, Lifeline Community Church, get a great jump start on building their building. And I hope that soon we've got some slides and I can show you where they were at when they started and, and where the project was at when they finished. And of course, you saw the video presentation about the mission team that went back to Eleuthera to perpetuate an 18-year-long relationship with those people. And as Jared Lowry put it, for 18 years, this church has been plowing and planting seed and reaping the harvest of changed lives. And, and uh, last week was Kids Week 2016, and it was awesome. And it's one of the main reasons that we've got a lot of tired people around Golden Corner Church this morning. And, uh, but it was fantastic. And I think there's a video that they're going to show you guys next week so you can see kind of what took place. And uh, I'm going to, I haven't preached in a month. And so I'm going to, uh, I don't know if I can even remember how to preach, but I'm going to make a, a stab at it and see what I can do. And this morning I want to tell you a story. And of course it's a story that's found in the Bible. I'm not just making it up. It's found in the Old Testament book of 2 Kings, the entire third chapter. And here's what I want you to do. You listen carefully to this story because within this story, there's a life lesson that's critical to you. And it's critical to where you are in your life. And in particular, maybe I should say it like this. It's critical to you getting out of the situation you're in at this point in your life. So you listen carefully, and you see if you can identify the moral of this story, okay? The story involves four kings. First was named Joram. He was the king of Israel. Second was a guy named Jehoshaphat. He was the king of Judah. Third king was a fellow named Misha. He was the king of Moab. And then there was an unnamed king who was the king of Edom. Joram inherited the throne from his brother I don't even know if I can pronounce it. Y'all wouldn't know if I mispronounce it, so I'm just going to say Ahaziah. Does that sound good to you? Sounds good to me. Let's go with that. Now, Ah Ahaziah, did I say it the same way the second time? It don't matter, really, does it? Ahaziah, he had inherited the throne from his daddy, a guy named Ahab. You ever heard of Ahab? Most of you have. Ahab was a bad dude. I mean, really bad, rotten to the core. The Bible says that. During Ahab's reign, he had subjugated the nation of Moab, which means he gave them a choice. Uh, you either, we either go to war with you, or you can pay, pay me not to. And so Misha, king of Moab, said, okay, we'll pay you. What do you require? And This is what he required. Every year, Moab had to give Israel 100,000 lambs. Can you think of, just think about that? 100,000 lambs, but they also had to give them the wool off of 100,000 rams. That's, That's pretty expensive. That's an extravagant contract. And so they did this for about 20 years. Ahab died. Misha said, I'm not doing that anymore. I was afraid of the old man, but I'm not afraid of his boy. Ahaziah, he didn't do anything about it. He only reigned two years. He turned the throne over to Joram. Joram said, I believe the contract read like this. You pay up or we declare war on you. They haven't paid up. So he put together quite an impressive army. Contacted Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Said, would you join me in this? Jehoshaphat said, I'll tell you what. My troops are your troops. Let's form an alliance. The only question Jehoshaphat had for him was what route we taken? is Isn't that kind of silly? What route we take it? And he had chosen not to take the most direct route, but he wanted to take an indirect route in the hopes that he could surprise the Moabites. And so he's going to go through the wilderness of Edom. Now, when you and I hear the word wilderness, we think of the Shining Rock Wilderness or the White Rock Wilderness. We think of this this lavish, lush uh, forest with pristine streams. And no, 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 the wilderness of Edom was a desert. It was rugged. It was harsh. It was barren, it was hot, it was dry. And so they journey through this wilderness. They meet up with the king of Edom. They add his troops to their troops. And the Bible said they, tra- they traveled in a roundabout way for about a week in the wilderness. And guess what happened? They ran out of water. They had all the, they had cattle with them. They had horses with them. They probably had tens of thousands, not uh, over 100,000 soldiers with them. No water. You know what this meant? Uh, they couldn't go forward into the battle with the Moabites, but they couldn't get back where they came from. They were stuck, hung out to dry. I guess you could say they dead-ended in the desert. Now, the three kings came together for a consultation, and Joram asked the obvious question, what are we supposed to do? And then before anybody answered, Joram chimed in and said, well, let me tell you this, just my personal opinion, it's God's fault. That's what he said. I want to be the first to lay blame at God's footsteps. He is the one who has done this to us. He brought us out here to die. Now, that's kind of interesting to me because as I read my Bible, Joram never asked God what he should do, how he should do it, when he should do it, neither did Jehoshaphat. I'm quite certain the king of Edom didn't either. They had never involved God, but all of a sudden, they're laying the blame on God, or Joram was Jehoshaphat speaks up and said, well, rather than seeing God as our problem, maybe we ought to look at it differently and see God as our solution. And perhaps rather than trying to figure out what to do, maybe we ought to just ask God what he thinks we ought to do. And he said, is there not a prophet of God here that we could consult with who could perhaps get a word from the Lord and speak on behalf of the Lord to us? Somebody said, yeah, Elisha's here, and he speaks for God. Those three kings humbly go to the preacher. And they describe to him the dilemma they have found themselves in. And they ask, will you get a word from the Lord for us? Now, Joram wasn't your passive little house on the prairie kind of preacher. You know what I mean? He lo- Excuse me, Elisha wasn't. I'm sorry, thank you. Elisha wasn't. Elisha wasn't that typical passive pastor. He looked at Joram and he said, uh, why are you asking my God of, about anything? Did I get that confused again? Elisha, Elisha looked at Joram and said, why are you asking my God anything? Why don't you call on your God? See, Joram was an idolater. He had long turned away from worshiping the true God. And he worshiped all these false gods. And and so Elisha just asked him plainly, why are you calling my God now? You've never had time for him. And he said, what about all those Prophets. He had all these false prophets on his. Why don't you call them one of your prophets? Why are you calling on me? He was making a point, making it very sarcastically. Your gods are absolutely worthless to you in a time of crisis. And then he said, you know what? If it were just you that came to ask me for this favor, I wouldn't do it. He said, but I have respect for Jehoshaphat, so I'll do it for his sake. And then he made a strange request. He said, is there a harpist here? I want you to think about that. A harpist with an army in the middle of the desert? I mean, who thinks? Okay, let's get ready for war. Make sure we've got some harps and some harpists with us. He said, Is there a harpist here, Elisha? And so they said, "Uh, Yeah, we got one. He said, Bring them to me. And as the harpist played, Elisha sought a word from the Lord. What was he doing with his music thing? Elisha was trying his best to create an atmosphere where God was likely to speak. And if God spoke, he was likely to hear what he said. And as he's listening to this music, well, God spoke. Elisha calls for the three kings. And he says, guys, I've got a word from the Lord. This is what God is saying. God is saying that I'm going to provide you with all the water you need and then some. I'm going to fill the desert floor with water. I'm I'm going to literally turn the desert into a river. And there'll be enough water for your cattle and for your horses and all your men. I'm going to do that. And you'll never hear the wind blow. You'll never see a drop of rainfall. How's that? And you know what God said? then? God said, and if you think that's going to be tough for me, he said, that's going to be a simple thing for me to do. Can you believe that? That's the kind of God we serve. I'm going to provide you all the water you need in a desert and no rain's going to fall on your head. And he said, Ann, I'm going to throw a bonus in. I'm going to enable you to win this battle with Moab and win it in a big way. When the guys woke up the next morning, the Israelites, the Judeans, the Edomites, this huge alliance, they looked out in the desert floor, and you're not going to believe what they saw. They saw water beginning to trickle into the desert. And the water turned into A river. And when the river subsided, there were pools of water all over the desert floor. Enough water for the cattle to drink and the horses to drink and for the soldiers to rehydrate. You know what had happened? Miles and miles and miles away over the mountains of Edom, God sent heavy rains that produced flash flooding. And all that water came together to form this incredible river that made it to the desert floor right on time. The Moabites had heard that the Israelite, or they, in this alliance, is stuck down in the desert, and they had now put their armies across the desert floor, preparing themselves for war. They get up early, they look out over the desert, they're looking into the east. They, the sun is still low in the sky, and they see these pools of water. Now, they didn't know it was water. They hadn't heard the wind blow. They didn't feel a raindrop. They just see the sun reflecting on these pools of water. The desert floor was made up of red sandstone. So what color do you think these pools appeared to them? They were crimson. They were red. And since these Moabites had not seen or felt any rain, weren't aware of any rain, they didn't assume that's water down there. Guess what they assumed? They assumed that's blood. They assumed that the Israelites, Judeans, and Edomites could not have gotten along together long enough to pull this off and they must have gotten into a big fight last night and massacred one another so there is no battle left to fight. Our enemy has vanquished itself. And so they left and went to that camp of their enemy completely unprepared for battle. All they went for was to gather the spoils of war and guess what they found? They found a revived army who was ready to fight them. And the Israelites, Judeans, and Edomites proceeded to slaughter the Moabites just as God had promised. There's a story. Now, did you catch it? The moral of the story? The moral of the story is this. We don't have to dead end in a desert. You hear me? We don't have to dead end in a desert. Let me explain to you what I'm talking about. The paths we choose in life sometimes lead us to a dead end. Like the three kings in our story, it's possible to use up your time, your energy, and your resources trying to accomplish some goal or reach some destination and only discover that you've just come to a dead end. Stuck. Can't go forward, can't get back. There's no way out. You know, I don't think it'd be too bad to dead end on a tropical island somewhere or dead end atop some lofty mountaintop somewhere. That wouldn't be too bad. But sometimes in life, we dead end in the middle of a desert. You know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about a desert? An undesirable situation. A tough spot. A depressing, frightening, painful place. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because that is exactly where you are. You're stuck in a dead-end marriage. Or perhaps you're stuck in a dead-end job. Some of you have dead-ended in a financial desert. Boy, you wish there was a way out, but if there is, you can't see it. For some of you, your desert is emotional or physical. You, you wish there were a way to escape the depression or the physical problems that haunt you. You're in a bad spot and you just don't see a way out. If that's you, I've got good news. You don't have to date into that desert. It doesn't have to end there. You see, God can make a way where there is no way. The people in our story dead-ended because they ran out of water and they had no hope of finding additional water. Without water, they couldn't go forward. They couldn't get back where they started from. They were absolutely stuck. So what did God do? He made a way where there was no way. He turned a desert into a river. God turned a desert into a river. Now, if you don't remember anything else, I'm telling you, you get this. As long as there's a God in heaven, we don't have to dead end in a desert. God can make a way out of any and every desert, even the desert you find yourself in this morning. So what should we do? Uh, I'm going to suggest that we let God get involved. Now, let's face it, sometimes we dead end in difficult places because we left God out of critical decisions. That's not always the case. Sometimes it is. With the men in our story, it was the case, and it might be the case in your story. But here's, you know, I've got such good news. You know what's some good news? doesn't matter how you reach the dead end, the solution is the same. Let God get involved. God is not only willing to get involved. He's waiting to get involved. The God of infinite power, wisdom, and resources is itching to get involved in your dilemma and deliver you from your desert. So we need to let him get involved. How do we do that? I'm going to tell you, and it's just as simple as it can be. It's going to be simple. Some of you will be tempted not to listen to what I'm saying. It's simple, but it works. I promise you, it works. How do you get God involved? Ask, listen, trust, and obey. Ask, listen, trust, and obey. Now, you don't have to remember the names of those kings. And you don't have to remember how many lambs and how much wool they sent up there per year. You need to remember that. Let's take a look at each word, ask. This is kind of self-explanatory. I'm not going to bog down here and take a lot of time. But we start by asking God to get involved and make a way out of this where there is apparently no way. And while you're asking, you ask Him what He wants you to do in this. Now, that may sound a little silly because I'm sure that you've analyzed your situation from every direction. And if you could have identified something to do, you would have done it a long time ago. But I want you to understand that there's a real good chance That when you ask God if there's anything he wants you to do, he's going to give you something he wants you to do. And there's a real good chance that something is going to be something you never thought of doing. So ask him. The second thing is listen. Once you've asked God to get involved and you've asked for his leadership, the next step is to listen to him. And I can't emphasize this enough. You cannot skip this step. You can't skip this step. And your response in response to your request, God is going to speak. I, I promise you. He's got something that he's going to say and you really need to hear him when he says it. He's going to encourage you just the same way he encouraged the men in this story. They've dead-ended in a desert. They asked for him, they asked him for his involvement. He spoke and when he spoke, he encouraged them by telling them, this need of water you've got, I'm going to meet that need. This enemy you're facing, I will help you vanquish that enemy. How encouraging those words must have been to those men. You don't read any more about them being confused or frightened or angry or blaming one another or blaming God. God's got something that He wants to say to you. It's a word that is so critical that it will absolutely help you experience peace while you're waiting on Him to get you out of the desert. You can't afford to miss what He's got to say. There's a real good chance that God wants you to take some course of action and you can't afford to miss out on His leadership. Therefore, you got to listen to Him. And in my opinion, there's a great misunderstanding about listening to God. It seems to me that most people think it goes like this. If I ask God for His involvement in leadership and I'm anticipating that He might have something to say, the way I listen to Him is by doing nothing other than what I would normally do. I'll just get up in the morning and go through my routine. and This is what we believe. We believe if God's got something to say to us, He's going to shout so loudly that we hear Him over the noise and the chaos of life. I do believe the Bible says that when God speaks, it's in a gentle whisper. Listening to God is not passive. It's active. Elisha listened to God on purpose. He pursued the voice of God. He created an atmosphere where I think God, I think there's a good chance God could speak to me. And If he does, I think there's a real good chance I'll understand what he's saying. I often have people tell me that God seldom if ever speaks to me. I don't think the problem is God and that he stopped speaking. I think the problem is I'm a part of a generation that for the most part has abandoned the practice of listening to God. I find that the more I listen, the more God speaks. To actively listen to God, I'm going to give you some good advice here. Start by creating an atmosphere where it's likely to happen. If he he speaks, it's very likely you're going to hear him. For me, this is what it takes. It takes time. It takes intentionality. Takes solitude, it takes patience, and it takes this book. You understand this is still the primary way that God speaks to us. The more you read the Bible, the more God speaks to you. I found myself in a real dilemma when I went to bed Wednesday night. I'd been working on two different sermons. About Wednesday, it was kind of like vapor. They just dissipated. They just drifted away. No I had no passion for them whatsoever and I thought, oh my gosh. I'm not preaching either one of those. I woke up Thursday morning, I sat down on my porch with this book. I said, God, I need to hear from you. Not just for my sake. I got a whole bunch of people coming Sunday morning anticipating that you've said something to me that I can share with them. I'm just reading through the Old Testament right now, and this was the story I came to. And literally, the story grabbed me. I couldn't get away from it. I read it over and over and over. I came up here and read a few commentaries, and I'm thinking, there's something here, God. There's something here you're trying to say. What are you trying to say to me? I was on my way home, and this thought came to me. Son, you never have to dead end in a desert. They didn't, and you don't. And you go tell them that Sunday. God will speak if we listen. He's got something to say to you that's critical to getting you out of the situation that you're in. And I want you to listen to him. The third thing I want you to do is trust. God is going to make you some promises just as he did to the three kings in our story. Trust him. God told them, I'm going to provide all the water you need. And it's not going to rain here. They believe that. You believe whatever promises that God tells you. It'll give you peace. As you wait on God, it'll give you peace. God may tell you to do something that doesn't make a lot of sense. You trust him and do it anyway. You'll see in hindsight that he knew best. Some translations of the Bible tell us that the first thing God said to Elisha that he was to pass on to these kings is, tell the men to go down in the desert floor and dig ditches. Tell them to go dig ditches. Really? I mean, they asked God, "What do you want us to do?" God said, "I tell you what, go down there and dig ditches in the desert floor." God, we need water here. We we got an enemy that knows we're vulnerable, and we've asked you humbly what to do, and you—that's what you've come up with: dig ditches in the desert. Apparently, they did, and in hindsight, I promise you, they were glad they did. Because a flash flood came through the desert floor. and When it all subsided, guess what all those ditches were holding? Water. Water they needed to survive. And water that turned out to be critical to them winning the battle. God knew best for them and he knows best for you. So you trust him. And the fourth is obey him. Do whatever he tells you to do. The men in our story obeyed God first. Then God did as he promised God not only gave these men what they needed to get moving again, he did more than they asked. They didn't ask for it. They didn't even ask anything about the battle. God just threw that in as a bonus. said, I'll make sure you win the battle. This is the way it works, folks. We obey God first, then he steps in and gets involved. When he gets involved, he'll always do more than we ask him to do. With his gracious help, we'll find ourselves beginning to move again. We'll start making progress. Slowly but surely, we emerge from the desert, not just as survivors, but also as victors. My wife and I were married young, and if you were here during the Making Us Husband and Wife series, I told our story, and you know that. And Nobody ever taught us how to set up and live by a budget. So for the first 16 years of our marriage, we, had to, we developed this nasty habit of living week to week week to week. You know know what that's like? Does anybody know what that's like? We just live week to week. Now, of course, there were some weeks that there were things that happened that stretched us beyond our means and we developed a second bad habit. We developed the habit of using credit. And so, on the Friday after Thanksgiving, 1992, 16 years into our marriage, we experienced a financial cave-in. All this caught up with us. We were in a bad spot. We were in what I would call a, a financial desert. We couldn't see any way out. I blamed her. She shared some things with me. She thought I could have done differently that would have helped the situation. She kind of blamed me. In my heart, I kind of blamed God. I'm like, come on, God. We're your children, we're your servants. How could you let us get in this situation? I remember one evening where we agreed, God's not to blame. If anything, we need to be looking at God as our solution. And we got on our knees and we knelt in front of our sofa and we prayed together. And this was where our prayer went. God, we've made a mess of our lives financially. Completely. We, we're, we're to blame. You have no blame in this. But here's where we are. We need your help. And we specifically ask him, what do we need to do to get out of this and stay out of this? And we made a, a we made a verbal, audible commitment. Whatever you tell us to do, we will do. We asked. We 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 invited him to get involved. After that, we began to listen. We asked for his guidance. We expected him to say something. But let me tell you how we did it. We went down to the Christian bookstore. We bought books about financial management. We bought CDs. We read those books. We watched those CDs. We studied this every passage in this book we could find about money. We studied it. You know what we were doing? We were aggressively, actively putting in ourselves in a position to hear what he said. We were listening I remember it's toward the end of December. It might have been right around the 1st of January. Uh, evening at the house, Lynn was sitting at the table sewing. And I was doing what I do best. I was lying on the couch. I'm just lying there, you know. And, I, and all of a sudden, it's one of those moments where God spoke. I didn't, I didn't hear it audibly, you know what I mean? But I knew God just said something to me. This is what he said. Ronnie, here's your first step. In 1993, give away more money than you've ever given away. We were givers, but it was very clear what he said: give away more money than you've ever given away. It was so vivid, Mike. I remember just raising up on the edge of the couch. I mean, it was just so real. And I prayed, and I didn't pray out loud. I didn't want to freak Lynn out, you know. But in my heart, I said, "How much?" There was a a, a numerical figure that jumped into my mind. I mean, it's just as clear. It might as well have been in neon lights. I mean, I just saw that number, you know. I turned to Lynn and I said, I think God just spoke to me. She stopped and she said, what did he say? He said, our first step is to give away more money this year than we've ever given away. Lynn had another question. How much? (laughs) I told her the number that came to my mind. Without flinching, she got the calculator, divided that figure by 52, and said, we'll do it. We asked for him to tell us what to do. He spoke. Does that make sense to you, that somebody in a financial crisis, that that God would say, here's your first step, give away more money? Now, you know, just being rational logical, if we ever find ourselves in a tight place, what do we do? We either decrease our giving or we eliminate it, so it until, until we can get back on our feet we're just not going to be it. you say it doesn't make any sense to me how much sense does it make to dig ditches in a desert we decided we'd trust him we started doing it I remember I balanced the checkbook at the end of January and uh I knew I'd made a big mistake. There was money left in her checking account after we paid our bills. That never happened to us, did it, Lynn? Never. We never had money left over. There was money left over. I, and, and there were several hundred dollars left over. I'm thinking, man, I have really screwed this up. And uh, I, I mean, nervously, I, I went to Lynn and I said, uh, uh, I, I think I've made a big, big mistake in our checkbook. She said, why? I said, there's money left. She said, we never have money left. I said, that's what I'm saying. I messed this thing up. She said, how much? I told her. She's like, well, I know that's a mistake. She sat down. She went over it line by line by line by line. And then she looked at me. She said, this is right. How in the world do you explain this? All I can explain is, the only way I can explain is this. We got God involved, and we were starting to move out of the desert. You can believe this or not, but she's sitting right here, and you say, Well, you might, Ronnie, you might lie. She won't lie, she'll tell you the truth. By August 15th, 1993, we were out of that desert. Out. 23 years later, we've never been back in that desert. Ask, listen, trust. Obey. You don't have to dead end in the desert you're in. There is a God in heaven who can make a way where there is no way. You just got to get him involved. And not why I say that I didn't word that right. You got to let him get involved. And how are you going to do that? Ask, listen, trust, obey. You got it? Okay, one, guys, I'm not going to let you go until all of you say, we got it. Got it? Okay, I'm going to let you go. Let's pray. Father, you know exactly where every person in this room is. I know this. I'm talking to somebody who is dead-ended in the desert. What kind of desert? I don't know. All I know, Lord, I don't know why, how they got there. I don't know what kind of desert it is. I don't know how long they've been there. I do know this I know that you want them out. I know for a long time you've been waiting. You've been waiting on them to invite you into this desert. Perhaps they've asked but didn't listen. Maybe they listened and didn't trust. I don't know. This ought to be, this day ought to mark the beginning of the end. This is what I'm praying, that as those three kings believed the word that Elisha shared, as, as the men had to believe those kings when they shared this, I ask that the people in this room believe what I have shared with them today. And believe it to the degree that they would walk out of here and try this really try this and give it time because I know what's going to happen you're going to deliver from this desert thank you God for your guidance thank you in the name of Jesus we pray together amen <laughs> you're dismissed thank you so much for being here